Hello and welcome to Downsizing, the polar opposite of investigative journalism. I'm your host, a bipedal whale, Tim Down. Uh, it was a pretty decent week this week, boys. Um, I'm at a nice even 262 pounds, which means I've lost about uh, a pound and a half this week. Not too shabby, given how often my lunch was basically just a frozen Jamaican patty and some carrots. I tell ya. Uh, not having a dishwasher really cuts down on my motivation to cook and make more dishes. Uh, I haven't done any meal prep one single time since I moved out. Most often, I'll just take leftovers from dinner as lunch uh, the next day, which is very practical, but honestly is very boring. I'm not a practical person. I think that much is pretty clear. Um, I mean, I started a podcast mainly to force myself to lose weight, you know? Most people just, you know, count carbs or download my fitness pal, but literally have to do an entire audio production just to stop myself from drinking Coke. The irony is it gives me less time to work out as well. Um, but being practical makes me feel so adult and boring. I mean, what's next? Am I going to be diversifying my stock portfolio and going to bed by 9 p.m.? I'm in my 20s. I should be doing drugs and skateboarding to work. (sighs) And so it goes. Uh, My girlfriend's asleep in the other room with the door open. So uh, I'm going to try not to be too loud, but I'm probably going to get pretty loud. So if she gets pissed, well, it's my fault. And I'm going to cut it out because, uh, you know, I don't need to get yelled at in my own podcast. Even if it's completely justified. (laughs) I did do it on the balcony last time and she texted me being, um, it's pretty loud and it's pretty late. So maybe tone it down. Of course, I only saw it after I finished recording. So what's done is done. Um, my morning routine has improved quite a bit, uh, plowing ahead here. I used to wake up half an hour before my shift started and get dressed and be out the door in like 15 minutes. Um, now I wake up an hour before my shift and I take my time. I eat some cereal, have some coffee, pet my cat until he scratches the ever living fuck out of me, then get dressed and go to work. Uh, eventually maybe I'll get to the point where I wake up like Patrick Bateman and do crunches while wearing a face mask. And then, you know, wax poetic about bands from the eighties while I hit an accountant with an ax, you know, really start the day off on the right foot. Um, one thing I would like to do is make some more kimchi and kombucha. Uh, but the problem is my fridge is so small that I hardly have room. So we're going to get a mini fridge for all of my various fermentations because I'm a dirty, dirty hipster. And honestly, for as much of a hipster as I am, you'd think I'd have a better beard. I mean, say what you will about annoying hipsters. They've got pretty good beard genes, uh, Although usually not very good head hair jeans, which I guess is a trade-off. But I mean, I shaved my beard like two or three weeks ago, and I'm still barely past five o'clock shadow. Right now, I only have two looks. With my hair down, I look like the bass player of a Led Zeppelin slash Greta Van Fleet cover band. And with my hair in a ponytail, I look like ideal rare Magic the Gathering cards. So it's a real win-win situation. Um, I've also had more and more customers greet me with a bonjour madame, which doesn't bother me, but 
I do make sure that when I respond, it's with as deep of a voice as I can. You know, the nice we. Uh, most people get pretty embarrassed, but a lot don't react at all, which maybe means they're super based and don't make any assumptions at all. Uh, what's more likely is that they just see me as uh, as a retail employee, as a kind of automaton, barely more sentient than a Roomba. Um, it genuinely, genuinely feels like somehow when people walk into a big box store, their IQ drops like 30 points immediately. I don't know if it's the lighting, maybe something in the air, maybe the purgatory-esque soundtrack. Who knows? Uh, but I've had way more than one person try to return something they bought at a completely different store. Uh, I don't think I've mentioned where I work on the show yet, and I'm not going to, unless I already did. In which case, well, oops. Uh, but the store these people actually bought it from is literally on the opposite end of the color wheel from us. It's not like we're both stores that are, you know, primarily blue and they just got mixed up. Um, and they are indignant too. You have to tell them like three times before they even come close to understanding that they're in the wrong store. Like, I point to my apron, I point to the colors around me, you know. It's real like, you know, square peg and round hole type situation. Um, and just so you know, in case you've never worked retail before... If you act even sort of like a cockhead, you will immediately be mocked once you walk away. I mean, immediately. So, you know, before you decide to yell at an 18-year-old girl for refusing to take back a light bulb you dropped in the parking lot, just know that you'll forever be known as a bag of nutsacks. Uh, but there's been a real vibe change since the pandemic hit. Um, there's a lot more tension in the air these days, where, you know, before retail workers may have been patient and understanding and sweet as can be. Now it feels like there's a bit more of an edge, you know? There's a kind of rage behind the eyes of my coworkers that used to just be behind my eyes, you know? Maybe it's my fault. And, you know, I'm patient zero for the shitty attitude in the store. <laughs> I once got told in a performance review that I need to work on respecting those whose words or actions I disagree with, which is a very interesting way to word that. That's a lot of, you know, beating around the bush, to just telling me to stop being such a gigantic asshole all the time. But I asked if that was based off of a pattern of behavior or if it was more just, you know, one big incident. And my manager at the time paused and then said, well, it wasn't a pattern of behavior, but it was more than one incident. I promptly never did anything at all to correct my behavior even a little bit, and I haven't heard more about it. So either I've improved by accident or they're just slowly building a case against me. If they are putting together a file of all my misdemeanors, I'll see if I can get a copy to read on the show. It'd be like Lenny Bruce reading his court documents on stage. The difference being, I could only ever hope and dream to be successful enough to be arrested for the kinds of jokes I told. The best I can hope for is someone telling me to just keep at it after a show. Um, on a completely different note... <clears throat> I've been feeling a pull towards the art world again, uh, you know, which I guess isn't completely different from the things I've been talking about so far, because of course that's one of the most hipster things I've ever said. But I studied art history as a minor in university and before that in CJEP as well, and I really enjoyed it. There's something very relaxing, almost kind of like meditative about looking at an artwork for an extended period of time and just taking in, you know, all the details. 
I want to, I have to burp right now. And I think that's a little bit ironic. I'm trying to talk about the merits of fine art as I'm about to burp into the microphone. Um, and I know a lot of people hand wave art and say it's all pretentious nonsense. And that's not necessarily wrong. But the reality is that a good chunk of artists were either raging egomaniacs or insane drug addicted degenerates, oftentimes both. And this whole idea of like the genius artist is a you know, a bunch of fucking hogwash. Most of them just painted what they painted because some rich guy told them to. You know what I mean? You know what I'm saying? You know what I'm saying? Um, At the same time, uh, I'm a big fan of the bullshit art, by which I mean all of the examples people use to show how stupid art is. You know, like, oh, we just painted a giant canvas red. So what? I could fucking do that. You know, that stuff. Because in a lot of ways, that's far more interesting than like a a hyper-realistic, technically very difficult piece. I mean, I love a giant, perfectly rendered pencil drawing of an eyeball as much as the next guy. But if you walk into a major art museum and you see a canvas that's completely blank except for a little dot in the middle, I want to know what that's about. Because that person is either a genius or they piss in jars and keep it so the government can't take their DNA. There's really no in-between. Um, There's an actual example of this that I really enjoy, but I know it would piss off so many people. There was a fella, don't remember his name, not looking it up, and this fella painted a bunch of canvases completely white with regular old house paint, and he hung them up in a museum. And he referred to them as clocks, because depending on how the sunlight hit them, they would look different, with different shadows, different colored light, depending on if it was in the morning or at night, and so on. And, you know, ostensibly you could tell the time based on how the they looked, you know, even though they're just white. Um, And when I heard that, I loved it right away because it's really inventive. And also I felt genuine glee at the idea of explaining that to somebody who hates art. Um, I've been watching a lot of video essays on, you know, a bunch of different artworks recently. And there's one thing they keep saying that's making me laugh. Um, You know, they'll be talking about a work of art and inevitably with each one at some point, they say that it baffled the art world ever since it was created which is funny because a lot of times it's like a painting of a person or like a painting of like a landscape or something, you know, like obviously it's, there's something inventive about it, but the idea that they're baffled that, you know, like art critics are walking around constantly in a state of befuddlement, you know, it just makes me picture an art critic walking up to every painting they see, like, what the hell is this? Someone painted a mountain? What the fuck? You know, like they work so hard to remove all of their biases that they just have no point of reference to anything anymore. Like they say hello to every statue they walk by because they think it's a real person. They try to walk through life-size paintings like a Roadrunner cartoon. You know, how positively droll. It's like a Fraser bit. I think I'm just Fraser Crane, but like significantly dumber and less educated. So I'm Fraser's dad. <laughs> Oh boy. Um, But I think my favorite exhibit I've seen is by an artist named Corey Archangel. Now I know that sounds like Chris Angel's nemesis, but I'm pretty sure this guy isn't just another Guido from Jersey. Um, He did a lot of art centered around like technology and internet culture. You know, like he had one that played a classical piano piece, but it was made from hundreds, if not thousands of clips of cats stepping on random piano keys by accident they were cut together to play the piece. Um, But the exhibit I really liked had less to do with the exhibit itself and more about the effect it had. 
So this was all uh, at the DHC, uh, a small gallery in old Montreal. The DHC is really two buildings right next to each other. So uh, we had to go um, see this exhibit for one of our art history classes and then write like a you know response to what we saw, um, which basically boiled down to, this is kind of interesting, but also not that great. Um, so anyway, me and my classmates went through the first building and we saw all the Mimi pieces, had a laugh, and then, you know, made our way into the second building. And when you get in the second building, once you walk in, you have to turn right. And straight ahead, once you turn right, you can either walk uh, straight ahead through kind of like this doorway into a really big room. Um, you can uh, you can also walk to your right to see more exhibits, like sort of follow this hallway, or you can turn to the left and you can talk to the secretary. Now, normally in the really big room straight ahead of you, there would probably be all kinds of different works on display. You know, maybe maybe a couple of paintings, a couple statues, some collages perhaps. But uh, Mr. Archangel, perhaps Dr. Archangel, I don't know. I don't presume. Um, he only put one piece in this giant room. Um, when you walk in, the room is completely dark. And the only source of light is a giant projection of live footage of Guns N' Roses playing Sweet Child of Mine live. And it's loud. It's very loud. You can hear it from down the hall, like once you walk into the building. Uh, but it wasn't just a clip of Guns N' Roses playing live. You know, he did a little little editing. Uh, for those of you that are unfamiliar with the song, uh, do your parents know you're listening to this podcast? Perhaps your mommy and daddy would like to know what I'm talking about. Um, either way, uh, it has an iconic intro. And it's as iconic as it is repetitive. But the whole song is kind of built around this like main riff. But he looped it right before the rest of the band starts playing. So it's just do dee do do dee do dee do do dee do do dee do dee do do dee do do dee do dee do on a constant loop, blasted all day long, nonstop. And if that sounds terrible to you, imagine the look on the secretary's face, who had to sit outside of this room all day long. She looked like she wanted to cry and burn down the building all at once. And maybe that was part of the exhibit. In which case, Corey Archangel is a genius. But I'm skeptical about that. Um, on an actual completely different note, I came across a restaurant in Las Vegas that piqued my interest. It's called the Heart Attack Grill. I know, it's very subtle. Um, the decor of the restaurant is all medical themed. So the waitresses are dressed like nurses. They take your prescription instead of your order. Uh, you wear like a hospital gown and so on. Um, their burgers are called uh, like bypass burgers. So like a single bypass burger is one patty, double bypass is two and so on. They go all the way up to octuple bypass, which is a big stack of patties in one burger. It looks fucking stupid. Um, they also have milkshakes made with butterfat and fries cooked in lard. And they have all this fanfare around like finishing your meal and, oh my God, it's so decadent. And to be honest, I'm not impressed. I'm confident I could finish an octuple bypass burger with fries and a shake and skip out the door once I'm done. Now, I've also argued that I can eat 50 samosas in under three hours. So I do have a history of making big claims on how much I can eat. But still, I feel confident, nay, cocky that I can do it. Uh, and when I was reading about this place, I came across something that said they they face some criticism for being a restaurant. Uh, 
and honest to God, I thought they meant that you would get breasts from eating there too much and getting fat. But no. Um, Of course, because this is Vegas, the nurses are all sexy nurses, like Hooters or any of the other numerous subtly named restaurants uh, with boob puns, breast puns, excuse me. Uh, The twist here, okay, is that if you don't finish your meal, one of the nurses will spank you with a paddle. Okay, not done. After that, you have the option of buying it. So in addition to catering to feeder fetishists, they also cater to humiliation fetishists, which is a tough, you know, combo to make. It's tough to bring those two people together. But, I mean, either way, it's got to be pretty dangerous to go around handing out hard-ons like that with so much cholesterol clogging your arteries, you know? I mean, I'm no cardiologist, but, I mean, it seems ill-advised. Oh, and you eat free if you weigh in at over 350 pounds, so they support body positivity, I guess? I mean, damn, we've, uh... (laughs) We've really run the gamut of topics on this episode, you know, from fine art to literally the most lowbrow establishment I've ever seen. This is a real uh, humdinger of a doozy, to quote Shakespeare. Um, That's going to be it for the first half this week, gang. As always, we'll swing back in with a topic in the second half, right after we hear a word from our generous benefactors. Folks, we've all been there. For one reason or another, we've all ended up in a fight on the internet. Maybe over sports, maybe politics, maybe over your favorite film franchise. Whatever the topic, the unfortunate reality is that sometimes you're actually incorrect. Worst of all, the person you're arguing with may even have sources they can link. Academic, peer-reviewed sources. Ah, sheesh, I sure am fucked, I hear you say. And up until now, you would be correct. But this week's sponsor is here to help. This week's episode of Downsizing is brought to you by Source Source. Source Source is the first service of its kind. Let's say you've just gotten into a heated argument about World War II. You've just passionately argued for 30 minutes that the Second World War ended in 1991, and now your debate opponents gish galloping and sending all kinds of studies, articles, and interviews that contradict your point. You've already called them a fucking idiot. What are you to do? Admit you're wrong? What are you, some kind of fucking idiot? Of course not. Open up the Source Source app, plug in the point you're trying to make, and SourceSource will use artificial intelligence to generate as many fake articles and studies as you need. Gone are the days of admitting defeat online. Go on, dig your heels in. You've got SourceSource on your side. The best part? It's absolutely free, so anyone can use it. But for a limited time, my audience can save 20% off of a premium subscription. SourceSource's premium service grants you access to not just countless fake articles, but will also use deepfake technology to generate fake interviews, news reports, even documentaries to help you gain the upper hand. Forget worrying about looking like a fool. You'll never be wrong again. Two wrongs might not make a right, but SourceSource makes you right every time. And we're back. So, a few weeks ago, I did an episode on obesity. In some ways... That probably should have been episode one. Would have made sense, right? You know, give some context to why it's important for me to lose weight, the negative effects on health obesity has, maybe set the stage for a bit, you know, for how I'm going to improve my life. Now, I didn't do that, of course. The first episode was on fad diets, and obesity was only episode 11. As they say, hindsight is twenty twenty, And my foresight is probably like 420. 1020, 
Whichever one of those is bad. I'm not an optometrist, but I am making a spectacle of myself. <laughs> Ooh, top tier joke. I need a soundboard, you know, so I can play air horns or rim shots after bad jokes. I'm also thinking about investing in a slide whistle. I think that could really add some color to the show. <clears throat> Excuse me. Incidentally, I had a conversation with somebody about who also has a podcast, and they talked about all the editing and prep and meetings and stuff they have about their show, and I was like, wow, I mean, <laughs> I've specifically created a brand that centers around how much of a fuckhead I am to really, you know, establish how rinky-dink of an operation this is. I'm not even sitting in a chair right now. I'm sitting on the floor because I don't want to forget my director's chair for camping tomorrow. Oh, yeah, I didn't mention in the first half, but I'm going camping over the next three days. And um, since I already kind of broke the rules with camping the last time, I've decided I'm going to full-on just kick the rules in the dick. I'm not going to drink pop, but I'm going to drink quite a lot of beer and I'm going to have some chips and I'm going to have a good time. So we'll see if I lose any weight this week. <laughs> oh boy. Um, <clears throat> anyway, so back on track. Uh, in the episode about obesity, I talked a lot about a country called Nauru because Nauru is the most obese country in the world. Uh, I talked a little bit about the reasons why that was, but in learning about the island, I had to I felt like there was more to discuss, particularly about like the history of the country and how it got to the state it's in now. Um, so that's going to be this episode. I'm going to talk about the history of the island and some of the things that led to it being the most obese country in the world and some, you know, other insane shit they did. Now, <clears throat> the human history of Nauru began 3,000 years ago. I specify human history because in a little bit, we're going to circle back and talk about the pre-human history of the island. Do you like how I'm weaving a, a tangled web of intrigue? I'm like Fyodor Dostoevsky up in this bitch. Anyway, 3,000 years ago, 12 Micronesian and Polynesian tribes uh, came to the island. And for the most part, it seems like things went pretty well. Everyone chilled on the island. Things were all hunky-dory. They lived off of coconuts, pandanus fruit, and fish. Uh, it's a really small island about the size of Los Angeles International Airport which is going to come into play later on. Also, if you don't know what pandanus fruit is, you've almost certainly seen it because I'm pretty sure, like, you know all those, like, ads where it's like, this food is a pressure washer for your arteries, and it's like, shows, like, some weird fruit. This, like, it looks like that. It's really cool looking. So you should look it up. I'm not going to post a picture of it. I'm going to post probably a picture of some dumb shit, um, which you've probably seen because I think most of you come to this from Instagram or Facebook. Anyway. So, small island, 12 tribes, everything's cool. Then, in 1798, British whalers aboard the ship Hunter found their way to the island. Um, I thought the, the name Hunter was kind of lame. I was like, ah, oh, it's kind of like a whatever name for a boat. Turns out it's not even named after, like, hunting. It's named after a guy named, I think, John Hunter, which is even more lame. Um, anyway, they didn't actually land on the island, but they anchored offshore, and then the Nauruans rowed out in their own canoes, to meet them and they apparently made such a good first impression on the british that their captain john fern uh named the island pleasant island uh, i don't know how they communicated though like maybe it was just kind of like a vibe thing like i dare say lads these gentlemen sure do pass the vibe check i find them to be not saucy in the least you know eventually they ended up trading european sailors food and fresh water for uh, firearms and alcohol 
a notoriously winning combination. I don't know why the British always felt like giving both of those things at once was a good idea. You know, it's like giving a group of people chainsaws and mountains of cocaine and going, I don't see how this could possibly go wrong. Uh, this, of course, disrupted peace on the island and sparked war between tribes that lasted for 10 years. Um, and then, uh, anyway, so the island was called Pleasant Island by everyone except those who lived there until Germany annexed the island 90 years later. Wait, Germany annexed the country? That's so unexpected. Um, it really seems like Germany's national pastime is just annexing territory, you know? And I wanted to know what specifically constitutes annexing, because for the most part, it just seems to be conquering. Like, it just seems to be like, oh, we're taking this now, you know? seizing land, if you will. Um, and I looked it up, and the consensus seems to be that conquering necessitates force, meaning like there was battles and armies and all that, such and such. Whereas an annexation can seemingly happen without any force, which I find a little suspicious. I mean, how do you take over land without force? Did the Germans just ask nicely? Or is it just like the implication from It's Always Sunny? You know, like, Hans, why are these people just letting us take over the land? It seems weird that they would just give it to us so easily. Well, that's because of the implication. What do you mean, the implication? Well, look around you. There are thousands of us, and we all have guns and swords and cannons. I think they know better than to resist. Hans, are you saying we would hurt these people if they resist? Nein, nein. I'm just saying that they know better. They understand the implications of us being here in this way. It really sounds as though we are threatening these people with violence. Oh, you are being silly. Go sharpen your sword or something, you silly goose. It just seems fucking weird, you know? It just seems like that can't possibly be the case. But, I mean, that's kind of what happened, you know? In 1888... 36 German Marines landed in Nauru and rounded up all 12 chiefs. Um, they were kept under house arrest overnight while the German flag was raised in the international symbol of dibs. Um, they then told the chiefs that they had 24 hours to surrender all guns and ammo on the island. Otherwise, the chiefs would be taken prisoner. To which I presume they responded, didn't you already do that? Aren't we under house arrest? Like, aren't we kind of prisoners already? You know? Like, if you don't give us your weapons, we'll arrest you more than we already have. You know, they sort of blew their wad right off the bat. And, I mean, I don't know how kidnapping all the leaders of the island is, like, not force. But, you know, whatever. Listen, I'm not a political science guy. I'm just a guy sitting on the floor in shorts and t-shirt drinking coffee at 1.30 in the morning out of a, a mug that the arm is a monkey's hand. So... What do I know? Anyway, the Germans take over, and they're pretty happy about it. They become even happier in 1900 when massive phosphate deposits were found on the island. Now, uh, we're going to get into the pre-human history of the island, as I alluded to earlier. Um, as you'll come to see, in order to properly examine Nair's history, we have to go back, way back. Thankfully before the ancient Greeks, to a time before humans ever came to the island. You see, for millions of years, the only inhabitants of the island were birds. Birds, I'm not sure if you know this, 
shit a lot. And for millions of years, birds would shit all over Nauru. Literally, not like, you know, talking behind its back. And over time, these shit piles turn into deposits of phosphates. Now in another show, the host might go into detail on how this actually happens, maybe, you know, dig into the nitty gritty of the scientific process of how it transforms, you know, synthesize all this complex information into an easily understood, you know, couple sentences. So you go, ah, I see, that's very informative. This is not that show. This is a show hosted by a guy who can barely speak in coherent sentences. So, for the purposes of this podcast episode, it happens because of magic. Now, phosphates are immensely important for making fertilizer for agriculture, because that's what I read. Um, They help things grow, and before you could grow meat in a lab, or clone corn, or whatever the fuck it is that Monsanto does. Besides, you know, sending thank you baskets to Jeff Bezos every month for overtaking them in the bid for the most hated company. I mean, it feels like five years ago, everyone was like, Monsanto is a fucking evil company, fuck Monsanto, and everyone's just like, what's Monsanto? Fuck Amazon. It's like, I'm pretty sure they're still doing shit, you know? Maybe Jeff Bezos is a Monsanto plant, and maybe Monsanto is just like a CIA plant. Am I going to get assassinated for speculating about the CIA on my podcast? I'd just be happy if the CIA listened. Cheers, boys. Um, let's see. So yeah, phosphates are, as I said, immensely important for whatever, blah, 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 Jeff Bezos, Monsanto. Um, yeah. So phosphates are also used to make explosives. So they're pretty fucking cool. So anyway, in 1900, they're discovered on Nauru. And in 1906, the Pacific Phosphate Company was formed or the PPC I'd like to see PP, if you know what I mean. Ooh. Now, they mined until World War I, uh, where Nauru changed hands and the British took over the mining. Then, in 1968, Nauru gained independence. And this is where things get a little interesting. Um, because Nauru gained the rights to, main, to mine phosphates for themselves. And boy howdy, they did. In a very short time, mining brought them an immense amount of wealth. In 1975, the little island earned the equivalent of $2.5 billion. With a population of 7,000 people, this meant that they had the second highest per capita income in the world, uh, behind Saudi Arabia, I believe. And uh, the same thing happened to Nauru that happens to everyone else who makes a shit ton of money in a short amount of time. They spent it. The people bought cars and houses. Uh, There was also a golf course and luxury hotels built. They built an airstrip to help bring in tourism and uh, Western foods. And they also invested in real estate abroad and bought buildings and hotels all around the world. And a musical, which we'll come back to. So in short, there's not a ton of saving or wise investing going on. So uh, let's take stock, right? We have an incredibly small island that very quickly became incredibly wealthy due to mining and then started spending the money like Shaq after he joined the NBA. Would you care to guess what happened next? In what can only be described as a picture-perfect synecdoche of planet Earth within the next 50 years, Nauru ran dry of resources. I know, it's hard to believe that that's the only way I could have described that, but hey, I don't make the rules. So they ran out of phosphates to mine, and as a result, 
they completely stopped spending and tried to save what little money they could. JK, they kept spending and tanked their economy. They, they had to sell all their real estate holdings as well as their planes and a bunch of other shit. Additionally, uh, mining left 80% of their land uninhabitable. Uninhabitable. Remember what I said about coherent sentences? Um, and it consists mostly of massive, jagged limestone pillars. Um, and despite being an island, they don't have any ports. And this is due to a reef that surrounds the island. Um, incidentally, in order to get the phosphate off the island, they built these giant iron crane things on shore to load it onto barges that couldn't get close to the island. Um, that are completely useless now. Um, so on the one hand, you can't bring things in from the sea. And on the other hand, you can't really grow much because your land is fucked from mining. So all you can do for food is import it by plane, which is expensive. And it's also not like you can easily bring in like fresh fruits and vegetables, particularly when you're a poor country, which Nauru is now. 23% of the population is unemployed, and the vast majority of the people who are employed are employed by the government. So through a mixture of short-sighted investments, aggressive mining practices, and a lack of resources, the population of Nauru became obese. Now, I already talked a lot about Nauru in a previous episode, so I'm not going to repeat what I said back then. But, you know, I thought I'd take a more in-depth look at how Nauru came to be the most obese country in the world. There are other factors than the historical ones I went over in this episode, but I think I addressed most of them in the obesity episode. What I do want to discuss, however, is the musical that I mentioned earlier. Now, you may be asking yourself, why would a country ever fund a musical? I mean, sure maybe the government might provide grants or stipends to artists to make something so in some way they're funding a production but this was full-on produced by the Nauruan government now this is because of a man named duke minks uh this man who definitely isn't using a fake name was a big music guy in his day he was a road manager of a band a british pop band cop band oh my fucking christ he was the road manager of a British pop band called Unit 4 Plus 2 in the 60s. And whose really only claim to fame is they knocked the Rolling Stones out of the top of the charts in 1965 with their song Concrete and Clay, which I've never in my life even heard of. Now, the music business didn't really pan out for Duke, so he went into the world of banking eventually rising to the executive level at Citibank Australia. And this is how he came to be an advisor to the Nairon government. And he saw that they were throwing a lot of money around, and he thought he'd pitch a musical that he and a, a former member of Unit 4 Plus 2 um, had written about the life of Leonardo da Vinci, particularly with the creation of the Mona Lisa. Now, that sounds interesting, right? You know, the most famous painting in the world from one of the greatest minds in human history? How could it go wrong? Well, first of all, the story was almost entirely made up. By which I mean it was entirely made up. It was based on what they thought could have happened. Um, and from the sounds of it, the government didn't really need that much convincing. They pretty much just heard a few songs and gave them the go-ahead. They invested $5 million to produce the play, and it was a complete flop. It was also four hours long. So, 
what people did show up pretty much left before it was over. So all the millions of dollars they invested pretty much went down the drain, which didn't go down too well with the Nauruan people, which maybe goes without saying. And all of this stuff said, I mean, the Nauruan people seem pretty cool. I saw one video where it showed different aspects of everyday life, and they seemed like really nice, welcoming, chill people. There was also a lot of stock footage of Nauruans riding motorcycles and smoking for some reason, which is pretty goddamn cool. Uh, I'm going to tag the Nauruan tourism board on Instagram, and we'll see how they react to this <laughs> this episode. Uh, maybe they'll send me a t-shirt. Maybe they'll declare war and ban me for life. Either way, it's good content, and they should be thankful I didn't mex- mention you know, laundering money for the Russian mob, shady banking practices, the internment camps, you know, all that stuff. So, uh, <laughs> well, they're definitely not going to like that. Anyway, that's going to be it for this week, gang. Uh, thanks so much for stopping by. As always, you can follow me on Instagram at excessively underscore Caucasian, or you could send me a little email at downsizingpod at gmail.com. Tune in next week to see if I can turn my shit into phosphate. You to me are sweet as roses in the morning. And you to me are soft as summer rain and don't in love with shit. That's something rare. The sidewalks in the street, the concrete and the clay beneath my feet begins to crumble. But love will never die Because we'll see the mountains tumble Before we say goodbye My love and I will be in love eternally That's the way, that's the way it's meant to be All around, I see the purple shades of evening And on the ground, shadows fall And once again, you're in my arms So tenderly Sidewalks in the street, the concrete and the clay beneath.